Hi all, this is an interview with Clara Meister, who is the first author of the paper Typical Decoding for Natural Language Generation. This paper, I believe, is really important because it presents a new sampling method that makes language models output much more human-like texts. I've already made a review about the paper. If you haven't seen that yet, check it out. Clara has seen it and we're able to dive directly into the matter. This interview was very cool. I learned a lot. As always, if you like, leave a like. Tell me what you think in the comments and I'll see you around. Bye-bye. Hey there, today's sponsor is the course on introduction to graph neural networks. This is a course by my friend, Zach Jost, who is an expert in graph neural networks. He's packed all his knowledge into one course that will educate you on both the theoretical and hands-on practical aspect on graph neural networks. Graph neural networks are really important. They're definitely one of the most interesting areas in deep learning right now. They've also powered a lot of recent advances in scientific breakthroughs, such as alpha-fold protein structure predictions or better traffic predictions. If you use my link, you'll get a 15% discount on the course. Enrollment is open right now and lasts until April 1st or until spaces run out. All right, let's get into the video now. See ya. Hello, everyone. Today I'm here with Clara Meister, who is the first author of the paper, Typical Decoding for Natural Language Generation. Clara, welcome very much to the channel. Thank you, and thank you for having me. This was uh, a really neat paper. I have to say, I have just finished uh, my last interview, uh, not just now, but I finished my last interview about a system called Blip. And what they said is essentially they have a system that generates captions for images in an automated fashion. And mm -hmm. then they have a filter that kind of weeds out the crappy captions. And they use that as a means of generating more high quality data. And they, and many others before them, have found that how you sample from a model, like from the language model they've trained, matters a lot. Specifically, they told me that nucleus sampling in their case was really a defining factor in getting more of a diverse uh, sample set. And mm. they particularly compared it to greedy sampling and to beam search, which they found uh, super underwhelming. And I've come across a lot of systems in recent times uh, for example, AlphaCode as well. I don't know if you know uh, how exactly AlphaCode does what it does. I don't either, but um, from the paper, I could gather that they sample a lot of potential solutions and then they reduce those down by filtering and clustering. And again, there, they rely heavily on being able to sample diversely and to sample you know, many, many different things. And I've for a while now thought you know, maybe our sampling objectives are wrong uh, for certain applications, namely for the applications where we actually w are interested in more of a diverse uh, output rather than the most likely output. And mm -hmm. along came your paper, which essentially exactly plays into this and suggests a new method. So I was super happy uh, to see this. I think it, it really hits sort of a nerve of the time. Um, if you if you would pitch it like the elevator pitch for the paper, what would you say about it? Um, yeah, I mean, I would say that, uh, I mean, specifically for language generation, I think with these large models that we've been training, um, that we, when we're generating language from them, we, we kind of need to take into account like what, what we really want from the model, what our objective is. 
Um, and, and also what we just normally do when we're, when we're speaking, when we're writing, like how we use language. Um, and I mean, trying to think about having like this, you know, what a model and what these models are is essentially like probability distributions over strings. Right. And that's kind of a strange concept, right? It's like, that's not probably how we imagine language in our heads. Um, but I mean, there is some like evidence in psycholinguistics that that's kind of actually a pretty good, uh, metaphor for how language is represented in our head. Um, and then, I mean, how we then go from that to generating language, um, and what the characteristics of the language that we typically generate are, I think, you know, we really want to take that into account, uh, when we're trying to generate language from these models. Um, yeah, I mean, if you ask me to like say, if you just ask me to say something randomly, right? I mean, it's like, what am I going to say? I'm probably going to say like, I don't know. I mean, that's, this is like, I don't, I yeah. don't really have like these really common phrases, but if we want something more interesting, like if you want me to say something more interesting, then I'm, I'm going to not just pull like the most likely sentence out of thin air. I'm going to, uh, try to convey information in what I'm saying. Um, and you know, I think that these models have, uh, sort of learned what, how to do that implicitly. Um, and we can ask them then to try and do this in a similar manner to how humans do. Um, yeah. So you pretty quickly get to this notion of uh, typicality, which is a notion from information theory. You connect it to various uh, disciplines in psycholinguistics. Uh, but a, a typical message, as far as I can understand it, is, well, as the name says, one that you would expect to see from sort of a, a communication apparatus. Mm -hmm. But it is, do I understand this correctly, is one that you expect to see if you if you assume that the communicators want to transmit uh, the optimal amount of information. Yeah. And is this the, the core assumption behind sort of the how we think about communication between humans? Yeah. I mean, so one important thing is like typicality in, in the context of communication channels um, is really only defined in the context of a message here, you know, some sort of message that you're conditioning on, um, and trying to convey. So, and here, I mean, especially when you're like sampling from a language model without having like this, uh, this, uh, implicit message that you're conditioning on, um, you know, in the background, uh, I think it's kind of hard to really, you know, quantify what, a typical message in natural language should be. And I think we're, we're very careful to say that there is this nice intuitive link between typicality and, uh, you know, how humans use language and what type of strings we might expect, um, when using natural language. Um, but you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of aspects of human language that don't really fall into, um, the paradigm that, mm -hmm. uh, you can really apply typicality to. And yet you, so you, you inspire, let's say, by this notion of, of typicality, you are, you're mm -hmm. inspired by. So you define the notion of a typical uh, message, and that is sort of the, the average information content you would see. Uh, I made a bit of a characterization in my video. By the way, uh, we have to inform the viewers that I used the old archive version, um, and you just updated it 
Um, and you corrected essentially all the, the little criticisms I had about notation and things like this, um, just to get the lore right. It wasn't me that caused it. You, <laughs> you did it ahead. And, uh, and then, and then I, you so know, props I used to you for version. picking them out. Yeah. I, <laughs> like, uh, my advisor always says that like every single paper out there pretty much has like math errors in it. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. and worry. <laughs> it takes a critical eye to find them. It does it's super easy to just glance over them, not realize it. Well, uh, I think it, I think it was actually straightforward. The paper is really uh, easily readable. So when we, when we think about how humans communicate and, and let's assume for a moment, uh, what you say that, uh, in your hypothesis here, any given word should have an information content close to the expected information content, mm -hmm. uh, i.e. the conditional entropy given prior context. Um, in other words, we expect this difference to be small in human like text. And you also say that the human goal over here is to transmit information effectively while also minimizing the risk of miscommunication. Mm -hmm. I made a bit of an example right here as if I explain math or if I explain the, the chain rule to someone who does and does not understand math, is this an appropriate example? Is this an appropriate metaphor for what you're going for? Um, or is this is this totally off? No, I mean, I think in, in a way that's right. Um, I mean, I think that also, that's actually perhaps even more related to what we describe later on, um, uh, which is like the rational speak, speech act, which is, you know, how we, we also are uh, taking into account um, the listener, right? Mm -hmm. When we're, when we're forming our messages. Um, so, I mean, that's definitely a component that's taken into account. So we'll modulate um, the amount of information that we are conveying uh, to basically, like, you know, to ac account for what mm -hmm. the other person might know. And I think that you can kind of model that in different ways. You can say that for, I mean, in, in your case, like, uh, I think how you put it, I think is a totally valid way to see it. Um, in, in that case, we can say that the information content um, for the speaker is going to be much higher um, than for someone else. So... I mean, yeah, I think that's a good comparison. So this notion of the expected information content is, is pretty uh, important here. And we say, okay, if I'm at a certain, let's say I've uttered half a sentence, and then I look at the distribution of the next word. And that distribution is just the distribution of the language itself, if I understand this correctly. So I have my training corpus, which supposedly is all of human language. I analyze it in my head. I determine what's the conditional probability for the next word in the training corpus. And then your claim is that what I do is I don't actually sample from that distribution. I'm going to adjust in inside of my head, the distribution that I sample from to, to words that closely match the expected information content. My question is why why do I do that? Like, I see the problem with always picking the highest likely word, right? Mm -hmm. uh, if I if I have a broad distribution like this, I don't want to do that. I don't want to just pick the most likely one. However, why can't I just sample from this distribution? It seems like enough times I would actually, you know, pick some other words that is also completely fine. Yeah, I mean, so first of all, um, I think one thing is when we're forming language, um, we are, I mean, 
we arguably aren't like sampling from this distribution, right? We kind of know, I mean, maybe to some extent we're sampling what, what word we're going to say next. Um, but I mean, I think the important thing to uh, internalize is that we have a message that we want to convey, right? Every time that we're using language. And um, the way that we choose to do that is, you know, like at a specific information rate. Um, because we want to communicate efficiently, but we also want to make sure that our message gets across um, without like having to repeat ourselves or confuse someone or um, you know making them like spend an inordinate amount of time processing what we're saying. Um, and so because of that, like we're not going to choose super low information words all the time because that's just kind of inefficient. Um, you know like, I can I can uh, say all these filler words right with and still get across a message, but adding like it's like that you know that person that takes forever to explain something just goes about it in a super like slow and redundant way. Um, hey, don't make fun of my videos. <laughs> what I wasn't? What are you talking about? Um, so. I think that's something to to think about. And then, sorry, the second part of your question, uh, I've already forgotten. I mean, I, I, so I think I've what I've understood is that if we look at just the distribution of the next word, that is in all of language, that is across humanity, everyone who's uttered ever that first half of the sentence, this is the distribution of next word. However, when I consider that I actually have a message to convey, that distribution changes, right? Mm -hmm. uh, is that about the characterization of why? Like my question would be, why don't I just sample from this distribution right here, given that if, you know, many words are possible, it will actually result in kind of a diverse sampling. Yeah, I mean, I think that you, like, first of all, I actually do think that uh, in the case of like a perfect language model that you, you could actually sample from this distribution mm -hmm. um, and be fine. Um, I think that there are some, uh, there are some artifacts that are a bit strange, like, especially in models that aren't trained as well with like this, this long tail distribution that it, like that tail isn't necessarily, um, learned all the learned very well, like what those mm -hmm. actual probabilities are. And so, you know, you end up with, um, like just oddities. Um, and, but beyond that, uh, I mean, I do think that like, we're not, I mean, we, we, we are trying to modulate when we speak, like the amount of information that we have per word, right? Um, to keep it even. And this is, this is not, I mean, this is something that is perhaps not very obvious, but it is something that's like well studied in psycholinguistics, like how we, uh, how we convey a message. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, like the, the, coding that we will use um, within natural language. Uh, and so, like, yeah, we, we, uh, we take this into consideration when choosing the next word. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, not to be too redundant or to be too surprising. Yeah, and, to, and, and again, to transmit what we actually want to transmit, right? Mm -hmm. Because I have something that I want to say, and that means I can't just you know, blindly sample right. from the distribution. I would never actually transmit what I wanted to say. Would it, be, would it be possible that, let's say, if I could hypothetically determine you know, what, what kind of, let's say I have a message I want to transmit, could I somehow 
define the information content of the next word, given the message I want to transmit, and maybe also given the the sentence, you know, so far t smaller than or smaller than t. Well, that's so um. I mean, that's actually usually what we're we're doing. Um, in so in a task like abstractive summarization, which you know we see is, is something that we experiment with, um, we are conditioning on that message essentially. Yep. You know, that message being the the um, article. Right. And so it is like it, we, we are taking that into account when we're trying to yeah. build our next word. Um, yeah. And it is still like this distribution should reflect the fact that there is a message that we want to convey. And, you know, given that message, it sort of it sort of reflects that, you know, maybe this word that without that knowledge would have been very surprising, but like with that knowledge, with knowing that like we want to transmit this message, actually that word is like what we would expect. Yeah. Okay. My my question, what I'm trying to get at is, if I train my language model for abstractive summarization, mm -hmm. right, the conditioning of the message is maybe already in, not maybe in here, if I use a decoder only model, but like, my question is still, why is this distribution here not enough? Like, why why do I need to cut out the most likely things, uh, even though, you know, sometimes I actually want to say them? So, I mean, I think it's just to be more human-like. Uh, mm -hmm. like, yeah, that's okay. that's the most I can say is... Um, yeah, it's, a, it's fine, right? Yeah. Um, so, you... you make you come up with and we're gonna gonna go back to these plots because i find them super interesting as well you define this typical sampling strategy mm -hmm. where you say okay we we have uh, this thing here which is the expected information content of the next word and then we're just trying to as closely as possible match that so we're just going to select a subset of all the words that we could pick uh, which closely match that expected information content according to your hypothesis. And then we're going to sample according to the new distribution that only consists of the subset of these words. Mm -hmm. So in the video, I think I raised a point which is maybe more of a, I don't know if it's circular logic or a, a philosophical point, but all our training data presumably of these language models comes from humans, you know, using language, transmitting information. Mm -hmm. Therefore, right? shouldn't like if i now train my language model and i use your method to sample things and you claim it's a human-like way of sampling things shouldn't that a result in the same distribution and b shouldn't it sort of the expected information content if i measure before and after like if I measure it in the training corpus and then if I measure it as an output of my model, shouldn't that be the same? Because presumably the training corpus is already generated from humans. Um, I mean, yeah, I think like, so yes, I think that makes sense if I'm understanding correctly. Um, and I also think we're kind of seeing that like in um, mm -hmm. the earlier plots, we're actually seeing that uh, like if there, there is like an average amount of information, right. According to the model, there's an average mm -hmm. amount of information that, uh, each word will contain. And I mean, human text seems to be coming from quite close to what, um, the model has learned that average information rate to be. Mm -hmm. 
And do you did you uh, investigate the outputs of your model and sorry sort of redid those plots on the output of your model and mm -hmm. observe the same uh, the same pattern? Yeah. Um, so that's like yeah, that's some, something we did as well. Um, we looked at basically a, a few different decoding schemes and saw what the uh, what these distributions looked like for the outputs of those decoding schemes. And um, I mean things like you know, it's a nucleus sampling with, um, like very pop, you know, popular values of P, um, looked similar. And, uh, so did the ones from typical sampling. Um, we didn't, I think honestly, they, they do look, they, by visual, like visually, they look pretty similar, which is nice. Um, and it's also nice to see that sort of these more, uh, these vetted decoding processes that have like stood the test of time are, are also actually, mimicking these distributions. Um, I think that if we wanted to uh, be robust about it, we'd probably want to, you know, come up with some sort of quantification for how different these distributions are um, and use that perhaps to see if, if that correlates with uh, how well these decoding methods perform um, mm -hmm. in terms of things like human evaluations. So can you tell us the story behind these plots a little bit more? Because you define epsilon in terms of an absolute value, yet here I see values that are less than zero to both sides. So I didn't know which one is, is which. Yeah, What's I epsilon here? For that. Uh, I tried to make it clear in the, um, the caption of the text, but uh, I don't think I, I, I did. Um, I mean, I, if, if I guessed correctly, it's the, it's the conditional, it's the expectation minus the actual uh, information. Mm, no, so it's or... actual information minus. <laughs> See, I would have gotten it wrong. Oh wait, no, no, I think you're right. No, no. But okay, so... maybe you can tell us what what does it because these are kind of so it's it's um, more if I see this correctly more sort of mass on on the left side of yeah. these close to this boundary uh, which is really interesting and then there's a long tail on the right hand side. Yeah. What does that tell us about um, human language? I mean, that's like a, a very deep question and I'm not, you know, I'm not entirely sure about what the shape of this distribution means. And I think it's very interesting that this is the, the shape of the distribution. Um, and actually we did, I mean, we used a few models here and all of them kind of did look like this, um, where you had like this peak and then sort of a long tail. Um, mm -hmm. and I, yeah, I mean, I think that that's like a, an investigation in its own right about how humans use language. Um, but uh, so, yeah, by the way, it is information content uh, minus entropy. So remember, so okay. like low information content, high probability, right? So um, actually human language uh, tends to be to the, like on the higher probability side of conditional entropy. Um, so this this thing right here. Yeah. Uh, so if, we, if we're way out on the right, it means that we actually transmit a lot of information, actually more than would be expected. Yeah. So there is, it doesn't, so there is a, a long tail of very high information uh, words, mm -hmm. let's say. Um, do you think, so because you, in one thing that I, I skipped over that in the video review, but you make this point of humans, what they probably do is they want to Everywhere in the message, they want to have uh, kind of a constant information rate. So every word should approximately uh, transmit this this expected information. Um, so as you go through the sentence, do you think this could be violated a little bit? Because humans 
most of them do tend to have like a, a short-term memory of three to four words or so that they you know can keep keep ready in the sentence maybe uh i can transmit this super high information word and then before my receiver gets super confused i can follow that up with like two or three clarifications which uh which would be then maybe here in the lower information content but they would be more yeah i mean so like i think it's hard to always avoid uh moments of high information i mean for example if 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 you're giving if you think about this very literally in terms of like what those words could be um you know they could be like someone's name right mm-hmm. and that's kind of like you're you're introducing someone that's always kind of going to be like a high information moment right um you have to Remember, I mean, we always forget people's name, people's names. Obviously, there's like, there must be a lot of information uh, in those names. Um, it's a very off the cuff explanation. But um, I mean, yeah, so I think it is hard to just 100% of the time um, avoid those instances. But I mean, it's, you know, this is talking about sort of on average um, what we're doing when we're constructing language. And I mean, so I guess I couldn't say whether in those moments we want we try to perhaps on either side um balance out like with lower information words this high information word because uh i mean you know maybe maybe we do in order to give the listener some time to uh, internalize this information um but there are also especially with with speaking, which is a different domain than writing, right? There are other ways that we can modulate high information uh, words, right? So we can um, elongate our speech to Mm -hmm. basically spread out information over time, right? And so it's not like here, we're just evaluating text. Um, So, you know, we, I think, especially in text, um, we're going to see these longer tales because you can't, sort of distribute information over too many words in certain cases, like in the case of introducing yeah. a name. Um, yeah, I think that's... And also, it has to be said that, you know, you can, if you go to the left, you get into the super low information words, mm-hmm. um, and there is only that many of them, right? As soon as I'm at the and a, right, there, there aren't that many. But however, there is, in fact, a long tail just in the language of super high information words that are quite unlikely. So maybe that plays a role into it as well. About these plots, you say, you draw two two different conclusions right here, mm-hmm. which uh, the first one is the peak nature reveals that humans indeed tend to form language with per word information content quite close to their expected information content. So this is kind of, you know, uh, here is data that shows our hypothesis is correct. And the second one is the centering of these distributions around a value close to zero reveals that our probabilistic language generators are learning what this rate is, which, and my point was a bit when in order to make point one, you need point two as an assumption, right? You need, you need to claim, well, I can only say this because I assume our language models are modeling the probabilities of language well enough. Otherwise, I could not conclude point one. Likewise, you couldn't conclude point two without having point one as an assumption. Is this, am I overlooking something here? Well, so 
I mean, I think the, the point here that we wanted to get across was really that, you know, two things should be looked at in these graphs, which is the centering of the graph and also the shape mm -hmm. of the graph. Yeah. Um, and I mean, so I think there is, there is an assumption that kind of has to be made here. Um, I don't think it's as quite as severe as, as what you've mentioned, but I mean, it is sort of that, um, this enter this information rate is kind of a ground truth of sorts. Um, but I mean, you know, you could, for example, shift, like you could shift that entropy rate. You could shift the entire distribution and still, um, you could shift H and all the P's and, you know, all of, uh, all of those numbers and still technically get the same distribution. So that, um, I agree with, but like, I mean, I think like looking at the peakiness of it, clearly we're seeing that, you know, humans are generating language around a certain, that, around that something, right? Content. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like it, if, what if it were centered around two instead well, of zero, right? It, yeah, it would be yeah. as, as peaky. Well, yeah, I mean, it, yeah, as peaky, then like, yeah, like we'd probably be, uh, that probably show that humans communicate at like a very low information rate, right? Um, or, yeah. So, but no, I mean, it's around, it, like, it does seem to be close to this expected mm -hmm. information rate. Um, and I think one other, like, the part two is really trying to, to show that, um, like, there's this, we would expect that if our, our model understands that, you know, humans are speaking at around an uh, average information rate, that um, that this distribution would be centered around, like on average, it would be mm -hmm. predicting um, that information rate for a given word or like that information content, that probability mm -hmm. for a given word. Um, and it does seem to be doing this. Cool. Yeah, this is this is just a bit of a nit a nit or a, a nitpick for me. It's I'm I'm totally on board with. I mean, it's pretty clear the language models do model these probabilities relatively correctly, especially the ones in the with the higher probabilities. And uh, I'm I am actually I'm fairly convinced by these by these plots. Um, yeah. No, I mean, I think what you bring up a really sensible. important point. And I actually, like, I'd spent a long time thinking about whether or not it was too circular. Um, like, you know, whether you could have one without the other, um, yeah. really. And I mean, I think, like, I think at some point I came up with uh, some examples, like some counterfactual examples where actually you could have one without the other. And of course, now, like, I can't remember what they are, but... <laughs> Oh. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's. Uh, I think I think people some... understand what you're what you're yeah. saying there. And there's there's definitely like a degree of freedom there, right? There's definitely mm -hmm. something that could change, um, that you know you could get those same results. And I think, but I think like that thing that could change would be whether the information rate, um, learned by the model is like the quote human information rate, the actual human information rate. And I'm actually not entirely sure that's important uh it just has to be it just has to get it right like relative to what it's predicting the probabilities um yep. for words right do you want to tell us a little bit about the experimental results because i have not gone into these at all during the paper review uh things that you would like to highlight or anything like that yeah um so, um, like as as Yannick mentioned, there's a new version on Archive, um, where we are. We also present um, 
a few different values for nucleus and top K as in like the same, you know, same number of values. Oh yeah. The hyperparameters. Sorry yeah. about that. <laughs> no, no, I think it's I very just... reasonable. I mean, the, the thing is like, you know, there were only so many human evaluations we could afford and we thought like, you know, we should probably test out more values of our own method since no one has done this before. But like a lot of people have looked at nucleus and top K sampling. Um, but uh, then once it seemed like, okay, this is worth, this is research worth doing, we were able to get a little more money and uh, launch a larger human evaluation. So those results are, are now in the paper. Um, I mean, I think one thing that was really interesting for us was actually just the um, the variety of values of tau that worked well. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, basically, it, like most values of tau worked well. Okay. Um, there, there wasn't like a huge difference between all of them, which we thought was really cool. Would you know, because in comparison to nucleus and top K sampling, those methods were really dependent on n and k. And I mean, I think there was like a little like. Like if you just look at the output of these models, you know, if you have a large tau, then uh, you know, maybe qualitatively you could say that the the text is like a little more normal, like a little more standard, um, and then maybe a little more diverse uh, for low values of tau. Um, but I mean, basically, it was just for it, it was just interesting to see that for um, these two tasks, at least that, you know, variety, like it wasn't, you didn't really need to tune tau that much, um, mm-hmm. just kind of, kind of worked. I mean, it's important, right? Because that's one of the issues with these things is that if, if I have to tune the thing to every new task I do, I, I'm a, a lot less certain yeah. in, you know, kind of the generalization of this, even within the same domain. Yeah. Uh, but if it's, it's interesting to hear. And if it's really a kind of a handle on the craziness that I get out of these models, uh, that could actually be even a a cool property, right? Mm-hmm. If you if you say actually most values work, but it is you know it changes just the style. I think that that is an, a useful hyperparameter rather than a nuisance. Like in nucleus sampling, you know if I don't get it right, it's it's going to be crap. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, the, I would like to think that that's the case. <laughs> I'm uh, slightly slightly biased here. <laughs> Um, yeah, is is there any? I mean, you you run you run various automated tests in abstractive summarization and story generation. Um, most of the time, the typical sampling is on on top of the pack. Sometimes not, uh, especially here in the story generation on some of these uh, automated evaluations. Is that kind of an interplay between the evaluation, how the evaluation is done and the methods, or if that is that a property of the task itself? What can you tell us about this? I mean, so I think a lot of these metrics, I think a lot of these metrics can only tell us so much. Um, and, you know, the text that we end up generating, uh, how it performs in terms of these metrics, I think like you'll see, for example, in human text, you'll get reasonably different values. Um, like you can get reasonably different values for things like repetitions and zips within reason um, and the text be you know, equally as good, mm-hmm. uh, at least qualitatively. So like, I think the, the important, I don't know, I don't know if it's important is the correct word, but uh, one of the critical things for us was like looking at, at um, whether we could avoid this really degenerate behavior 
with uh, with models because um, I think that's something that that's like one of the bigger problems in language generation um, is just like this tendency for uh, for these methods to fall into repetitive loops. Um, and I mean, we we basically just like we we didn't really see any of that mm. in using our method, um, and so I think that was an, an important takeaway. Um, so yeah, I mean, always kind of uh, performing well in terms of this um, in these metrics that show how repetitive or redundant text is. Um, I think it is is what we would expect, right? You know, we're saying that like if text is we want text to be about as redundant as human text is, because um, that's like one metric you can use uh, to quantify information content, right? Um, so it was good to see that that like at least you know it's it's a necessary, not sufficient um, criteria, but it was good to see that that it was met. Yeah, I was just looking like just now looking at at perplexity. And yours is in bold. And I was like, wait a minute, lower perplexity is better usually. But then I realized, I realized what you're, what you have to do here is obviously match the perplexity of the, of the reference text as mm -hmm. closely as possible. So, so yeah. the goal is to be as close as possible to that number, which is really astonishing to see because, you know, in machine translation, people are fighting for 0.1 perplexity or so for the new state of the art. And here it's a difference of, you know, it's, it's quite a magnitude of difference between yeah. these. Uh, between these methods, which is cool to see, and I think shows shows quite well that in something like story generation, uh, these models might really just not um, overfit is the wrong word, but overproduce um, not as creative outputs, or yeah. or maybe even degenerate ones, as you say. I mean, I think actually in, in the context of machine translation, and this is something that. Um, that you know, an experiment that I want to personally perform um, is look at what the like average perplexity of the reference text is, um, mm -hmm. right? I mean, so and the generations, right? I mean, so the one thing about machine translation is like typically we're evaluating um, on things like blue, right? Not yeah. not perplexity so much. So we're evaluating you know what, on the generations themselves rather than the evaluation of uh, the reference text, like what the perplexities are. Um, but I mean, it would be, to me, it would be interesting to see what, um, you know, good generated text, what the perplexity of good generated text is compared to, uh, human like text. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think in that case, they, they would actually probably both be quite small. Um, at least that's my, my intuition. Um, of course, one, one, uh, artifact that I think would kind of get in the way of these experiments is the fact that uh, machine translation often uses label smoothing, right? Um, mm -hmm. And label smoothing is, is basically like a form of, of entropy regularization. So um, it makes these distributions higher entropy, even, uh, yeah. Uh, even than, if they shouldn't be. Yeah. Um, and that actually, I mean, basically... Uh, you can you can read other papers about this that'll explain it, but uh, it it is kind of it does interact with beam search like it's like you know the match of beam search plus label smoothing uh, tends to work quite well, but I think if you were to really perform these types of experiments to understand what um, the types of perplexities for machine tra like for translations 
uh, good translations would be, I think, yeah, you need to do it with a, a model that doesn't, that hasn't had this sort of artificial inflation in entropy. Do you, do you think um, our training objectives are the correct ones? Let's say, let's think of something like story generation is particular because what I'm hearing now is that well label smoothing but plus beam search works but it's more like a hack to get around the weaknesses of of beam search without label smoothing do you and and that is you know something I I can maybe you know get get behind uh, do you think we have the correct training objectives if our goal is really to create a diverse and uh, interesting set of outputs. Do you think it's a good strategy to train, let's say, maximum likelihood and then sample using something like typical sampling? Or should we also change our training strategy? Um, so I personally think that maximum likelihood is a pretty robust uh, objective. I mean, in terms of like the information theory, uh, perspective. I mean, when you, when you are maximizing likelihood, right, you're also minimizing KL divergence. So you are basically looking for the uh, model that assigns the same information contents to strings as as the empirical distribution, right? So it, it's it, like you know, they're just equivalent. Um, and so I think if you take that into account, basically if you take into account exactly what you're doing with your objective. Um, and then from that, you know, go on to, okay, well, uh, given, given this distribution, right, how, how would we go about, how would like we as humans go about generating from this distribution? Um, or, you know, how would, if like you're generating an image, like how would nature go about like generating from this distribution? Um, I think, you know, that it's, it's really important to, I don't think there's a correct way necessarily, um, to go about training and decoding, but I think we really need to take into account more their interaction um, and understand like what is going on within that interaction. Yeah, I mean, I'm all on board because it also means that we can use we can reuse the same model for multiple, let's say, tasks if we swap out our decoding strategy. Um, can you tell us a little bit about these plots and what we see here? Yeah, so this is um, more just showing uh, the repetition values. So kind of what I was talking about earlier. Uh, so high repetition values would, would indicate that we're getting into kind of like degenerate loops, like repetitive loops. So where the model outputs the same thing over and over again. And I mean, we really see this in story generation for low values of uh, K and N, um, where, yeah, exactly there. So, you know, this is these are like rep, like repetition values of like 0.8. So it's just like really just spitting out the same exact thing over and over again. Um, and I mean, yeah, it's like, I think that looking at, at this type of behavior in terms of information theory, um, it actually really makes, to me, it makes it make sense why this is happening, right? If we're saying that we're always going to output the most likely word, like those are also the words that just have like no information content, right? And also like if, if, I, if I come to you and I say, look, here is a sequence of words. It goes apple, banana, peach, apple, banana, peach, apple, right. banana. And then uh, to ask you like, what's next? I mean, it's, it's quite likely that you know, peach is the next thing. And, and that yeah. explains very well why if you keep repeating, you're sort of reinforcing even that, that repetition because 
as you keep repeating, the next repetition becomes more likely, yet mm -hmm. the transmission of information is is almost zero. Yeah. No, and, but I, I mean, I think one thing that would actually be really interesting, one sort of experiments that we have yet to run is um, to see, you know, if at the, before you get into these repetitions, like if you start with, with something and then you, like if you start with uh, one phrase and then um, go into typical sampling, right, can you prevent um, some of these repetitive loops because yep. you've now come in with the objective that you want to transmit like more information. Um, mm -hmm. you, you don't, you don't want to be, you don't want to transmit like a small amount of information, um, which is, is achieved by like doing, uh, by, by giving high probability, low information words. Right. So kind of seeing if typical sampling can almost help us break out of repetitive loops. Although by your own by your own what you wrote if you are let's say in such a loop let's or at the beginning of such a loop the distribution would be extremely peaked right and mm -hmm. at that point typical sampling would also go for the for the high uh, probability words or yeah, is that i mean yeah. and, and honestly like i think it should right mm -hmm. like at that point but um i mean this is kind of why it's like before you get into yeah. the repetitions right so like at that point you know where uh, something like nucleus sampling might decide like, yeah, like the lowest information choice is, you know, just to repeat what's already been said. Um, yeah, if we can prevent, uh, if we can prevent those types of behaviors. Just some small technicalities, uh, whether, where I want to ask you if you think that it's appropriate, do you think the absolute difference is an appropriate measure or why did you decide on that? That's the first thing. Second thing is, do you think this cut off this hard, you know, I'm going to take this many words and then I'm going to exclude the rest. And then I'm actually going to sample from that bunch of words as if it were like the original distribute, like with, with their original logits. So just the technical implementation of the idea, what could mm -hmm. be like, what are arbitrary choices? What are, what are things that you did for a reason and how could they be better? No, I, I think that's like a, a great question. Um, why absolute value versus, uh, you know, squared distance um, and and why the hard cutoff? Um, I mean, to be honest, I think that this was the original instantiation of the idea was, you know, just choosing words from like near the information content, um, near the expected information content. And I think uh, in order to really introduce this concept into the literature, it helped um, at least what I thought was that it would help to have something that was akin to what most people are familiar with, which mm. is nucleus and top K sampling, right? And so um, for better or worse, this method was kind of like, okay, here's something that's very parallel, um, that'll be easy to understand. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's you know, also just truncating the distribution, also like looking at the specific portion of the distribution. Um, and that's where we'll sample from. Now, whether it's better to use the square distance, I mean, so uh, we ran some additional experiments later on, like after releasing this draft, looking at things like um, the square distance uh, and, you know, trying to come up with a soft distribution. Um, and yeah, they, they worked about like about the same, sometimes a little bit, like, mm. honestly, I think I'm going to like, I think there's just a lot of research to be done here. Um, I think there's a huge a uh, huge body of research that can be done in sort of figuring out exactly what our objective should be. Mm. Um, perhaps learning this objective, like learning what the correct, uh, what the correct formula right here should be. 
Um, and that's, you know, that's to come in the future. So I can't say that uh, square distance isn't better. Um, very well could be. All right. Is there anything else you want to get, get rid of? Uh, how can, can people get started with this? Is there code somewhere? There is code, right? I've seen that. Yeah. Um, there's actually code in Hugging Face already. Nice. Um, so if you have, I don't know if they've uh, released a version since it entered the library. I mean, it, it's been in there for about a month now. Um, so I think if, if you have, if you have uh, the transformers, hugging, the hugging face transformers library installed from source, if you have pulled it in the last month, um, it'll be in there. And, uh, you know, when you generate, if you just add in the argument, typical P equals something, then you'll have, you'll have typical sampling. Nice. And I mean, I really encourage people to play around with it. Um, I, I mean, I, yeah, you know, you're, you're going to expect me to say this, but I've actually just been really impressed by the outputs of typical sampling. Um, just that they they have been pretty high quality from my perspective um, and interesting. Yeah. Cool. Uh, Clara, thank you very much for coming here. And uh, Thank you. Thanks for the great conversation. It was a pleasure. <laughs> you know, maybe you'll see uh, another update on archive with uh, some of the things you've pointed out. <laughs> Clean up some of my arguments. <laughs> that that would be that would be excellent lore for the channel. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Mm -hmm.